This is Hear It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and today we're going to look at a book called The Hidden Life of Wolves. It's a new publication from National Geographic, which, of course, does a great job of uh, publishing interesting books with lots of images. And this particular book was created by Jim and Jamie Dutcher, and it has a foreword by Robert Redford. So uh, we'll find out all about that, and I hope a lot about wolves. Uh, Thank you for joining us today, Jim and Jamie Dutcher. Thank you, Doug. I'm thrilled to be here. And where are you speaking to us from? Actually, from New York right now. Okay, so you're you're not in the Sawtooth Mountains right now. No, <laughs> you're a little far from Idaho. Uh, I think this hotel is about the room's uh, smaller or you know, than our tent was. Your yurt, <laughs> uh, Jim. How did this all get started? Um, it, it, actually, it was an idea for a film back in the 1990s, um, and one film became two, and then three, and then uh, we produced a four books all together, and um, it's, it's just something we couldn't get out of our systems. Um, I, I have a life, wildlife uh, career of making films about animals, and um, the wolf um, just got a hold of us, and nothing could change. We, we just um, we have put down our camera gears today, and we have a nonprofit. We go around the country talking about wolves and trying to explain um, where they fit in. Well, let's get right back to the beginning of your real project, Living Among Them. First yeah. of all, how did you do it? Um, we started with puppies. Um, Jamie, you want to start? Yeah, we, uh, we bottle-fed them just as they were opening their eyes, and uh, that was so they would be comfortable us, with us and trust us, uh, but they weren't at all treated as pets. Um, all behavior studies on, done on wolves have been done in captivity, uh, usually in enclosures of one to three acres. We had the largest in the world, 25 acres. And we lived in a tented camp with uh, with a yurt, as you said. And um, the wolves grew up and went about their business and pretty much uh, it enabled us to bring out our film gear and uh, re- record what they were doing without having them stop and change the way they were. Because if you're lucky enough to see wolves in the wild, you'll notice that... Uh, you know, if they see you, they'll stop what they're doing and, and just watch you. And this way the wolves just kept doing what they were doing. And, you know, I'd also like to say that, that uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, couldn't you get close to a pack in the wild? And, you know, this is during a time when, you know, wolves were still on the endangered species list. And if we had come across a pack in the wild that we could habituate to film, uh, the next time, you know, they would be comfortable with our cameras, but the next time somebody pointed something at them, it might be a gun rather than a camera. Did, did these animals attach themselves at all in any way to you? I mean, uh, you were living among them for years. They were familiar with us. Um, you know, they would, as you can see from some of the pictures in the book, they, they would come up to us and greet us as they would each other. They'd whine and lick our faces, but then they would go off and do what they needed to do. We couldn't really go to them. They mm. would come to us. Why do you think there is so much uh, fear and, uh, I guess, almost anger aimed at wolves by, by some folks? All right. There's so many. I mean, we had the old myths of uh, Little Red Riding Hood and Three Little Pigs. But today, to discredit the success of the wolf reintroduction program, uh, there are these new myths that these wolves are different than the wolves that used to live in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, that these wolves are from Canada. They're super size. No, they're about 130 pounds at the most in a male, um, 85 maybe in a female. 
It's the same wolf. They don't recognize international borders, and they don't kill for for sport. You know, that's another thing they think. You know, I found this carcass of a half-eaten elk, and the wolves just killed it for recreation. No, what happens is wolves are very wary. Um, they're easily pushed off their prey by other predators or people coming along on a snowmobile or just hiking. Well, you know, they, they're very sensitive and they desert the, their prey, but they'll come back to it and finish it. The research is there that that does happen. And if they didn't, um, this food provides very much needed nourishment for other animals, scavengers such as grizzly bears, black bears, wolverines and eagles. Um, it's really part of the system. Well, uh, let's do a little bit of history here. How did they get on the endangered species list to begin with? Well, they were put on the endangered species list. Um, Actually, they were uh, one of the first, if not the first, um, animal put on the endangered species list when the Endangered Species Act was uh, created in the 1970s. so, and, you know, a lot of people have this, uh, this idea that wolf reintroduction was some knee-jerk reaction and done without any thought. People had been talking about wolf reintroduction in um, not only the federal government, state government, and, you know, all kinds of organizations had been working on the recovery of wolves really since the 1960s. And um, with the development of the, uh, the Endangered Species Act during the Nixon administration, that then set the, uh, the tone for um, really trying to make something happen. Because part of the Endangered Species Act is that you, the, um, the, gov- the federal government does have to work to um, reestablish that species, just like bald eagles and, and other animals. But there has been a kind of an irony here because... They have reintroduced the species in various parts of the United States, and in the response in some states like Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Minnesota has been to take the the uh, animal off the list, or in a sense, to uh, encourage hunting. Oh yeah, um, when um, when hunting began about eighteen months ago, um, we had about seventeen hundred wolves. Now we've killed nearly a thousand of those wolves. Wow. And that's just from recreational hunters. It started out with one hunter could get one wolf, but now a hunter at, who may trap also can kill 16 at a time. And the hunting season goes on for 10 months. I mean, we're hunting wolves when they're puppies in the dens. Uh, there's proposals to gas the pups in the dens. And now there's a, a ruling that are, or a law that maybe you know, come to be that you can take the carcasses of dead wolves and bait traps with them. And this is the, the worst thing, because this is a social animal. They, mm-hmm. they, they defend their injured. They come back and, and they protect. Um, they used to do this with fish hooks with the little puppies and put them into dens and then pull the pups out squealing because they had uh, swallowed the hooks. And then the pack would come back and you'd shoot them. And um, it didn't take very long to eliminate the wolf because they're so bonded to each other. Well, you talk about the socialization of these animals in terms of within their pack. They've got a hierarchy. So what happens if you hunt and you, you know, get rid of somebody or some animal? Well, probably all important to the pack, but what happens when one of them is killed? Yeah, that's, that's a, really, a really good point. Usually, um, you know, it's, it's the alphas that stand up to perceive danger. So, you know, if, if a wolf is staying behind and a hunter happens to see that animal, it very well likely could be an alpha. 
So, you know, the hunter kills the alpha, and then they're killing the knowledge. You may have other pack members that look like adults, but they might not be mature enough or have the knowledge, the knowledge to bring down large game or, um, you know, to know where to follow the game. And then what happens is you create a situation where then these animals have to resort to something easy, and that's when they go after livestock. So you're really perpetuating a problem by um, by indiscriminately killing wolves. Hmm. The uh, loss of the alpha. Well, well, let's get right back to a little more basics here. Let's talk about the hierarchy. What is the social structure of a typical pack? Well, there's an alpha male and an alpha female, and they're the only two that normally mate. Um, and they only mate once a year, and um, if there's a lot of prey, it, the alphas may allow another wolf to breed. But normally they, they, it's just them, and it... Um, and then there, below the alpha is the beta wolf, is sort of the second in command. And at the bottom of the pack is the omega. Uh, and that wolf is usually shunned and disciplined and um, sort of the scapegoat of the pack. But we've noticed with uh, omegas that they instigate play a lot to kind of diffuse the tension of the pack. And we had one that was killed by a mountain lion. And the pack, you know, would normally play every day. They would chase each other and pull tail and such. But after this wolf was killed by the mountain lion, the uh, the pack stopped playing for six weeks. And they howled differently, too. They would normally howl, howl as a group, uh, uh, sort of celebrating solidarity. But after the, this happened, the, the pack would howl separately and very mournfully. Jamie, uh, you actually recorded a lot of these howls. And, and they, I have heard a few of them, and they're... they're Kind of beautiful. <laughs> yes, they really are quite beautiful. It's uh, you know very different than a than a coyote, which is a little more high pitched and yippy. Um, howls of uh, from wolves or that have this deep kind of soulful sound to them, and it really sends the hair on the back of your neck up. <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's a fabulous, fabulous sound. But they're communicating when they do this. They are. They really are, and that's part of uh, the 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 wolf's bad rap, their bad M.O., is because people, you know, they would hear the howling, growling, and snarling, and they would instantly think of a vicious animal. But really all it is is a language. They're just talking to each other. If I'm, walking, oh, yeah, if I'm walking through the woods and uh, by some wildly odd circumstance I come across a wolf, <laughs> which is probably not very likely, uh, what should I do? Be really thrilled. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, the, the chances of that happening um, are um, are very, very slim. Mm-hmm. But if you were fortunate enough to see one, they're really just they're they're afraid of us, yet they're very curious of us. And you know, that's why we were able to have this relationship. You know, in order to uh, turn wolves into dogs, I'll tell you quickly a, a great story. A friend of ours was. Um, skiing with, with skins and was climbing up uh, a big ridge. And he got to the top of the ridge and popped his head over. And he popped his head over right into the face of a wolf. <laughs> it was right on the edge, sleeping there. And the two of them just looked at each other. And he didn't move. He was scared to death. I mean, he likes wolves, but it's like, you know, you didn't want to be that close. The wolf got up, and then our friend realized that there were six other wolves behind him, behind this other wolf. The wolf stood up. Covered with snow. Covered with snow. (laughs) The other wolves got up and all just started walking away. And that wolf, the the one that he first saw, moved off a little bit but kept staring at him. 
and until all the other wolves were gone, then that wolf turned and went. It seems, and that's an experience of a lifetime. Yeah, I would, I would think so. But yeah, and and that wolf was probably the alpha, you know, hanging on, saying, you know, hey, let let my pals get out of here, you know, and we'll just be on our way. But the interesting thing to me is that that wolf is encountering a human and is doing something. Uh, kind of deliberate, almost like you know, I, I know about, or some, I have some kind of an instinctual understanding of what this thing is. I think we got to move away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, wolves don't see us as prey, but they are, they are afraid of us. But as I said, there is that there is that curiosity of us because really, wolves and humans live very similar lives. I mean, we're certainly you know not the same as um, you know the great the great apes and chimpanzees, but but the the way they bond with their families, the way they communicate as a group, you can really see a lot of yourself in the wolf. Hmm. Uh, and you can certainly see a lot of animals in the wolf. I mean, you can see a German shepherd or an Alaskan oh, yeah. husky. Oh, yeah. Physically <laughs> uh, so and emotionally, they're, they're, they're the same animal as our family dogs. Yeah, yet we have this, this, uh, this horrible hatred for the mother of all dogs. Well, that's, again, that's sort of ironic because the people who hunt wolves probably have a dog at home. <laughs> no, I wish I could understand that, or I could, you know, explain that to people. And, uh, well, we're, that's our job. That's, that's what we do. <laughs> 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 we do that. We're speaking with Jim and Jamie Dutch here. They have written the Hidden Life of Wolves, a new book that's out by uh, National Geographic, and we'll talk with them in just a moment about some more of their experiences with the pack they lived with. Tonight's television lineup on Prairie Public starts with Antiques Roadshow from Boston, where a piece of Beatles memorabilia proves quite valuable. Then at 8 Central, the Market Warriors are at the Long Beach Antique Market in California. And at 9, Independent Lens presents As Goes Janesville, chronicling three years in the lives of residents of Janesville, Wisconsin, following the 2008 closing of a century-old GM plant. Tune in tonight on Prairie Public. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. In the background, David Wilde with his guitar poetry, the CD titled The Inner Star. We're speaking about The Hidden Life of Wolves, a new book out by uh, National Geographic, published by them. It was written by Jim and Jamie Dutcher. They lived among wolves for years in their yurt in a compound or a a fenced area, I guess, in uh, the Idaho Sawtooth Mountain Range area. And they watched these animals up close for a long time and uh, came up came out with uh, lots of fabulous photographs that are in the book and a lot of interesting insights. You also have a website. You have a, you have a I guess, a, a nonprofit you call Living with Wolves. Hello? Have we, have we got you there? Oh, I think we've lost our, uh, we've lost our uh, connection here, but... Uh, we are waiting just momentarily to hear from Jim and Jamie Dutcher. Again, we're talking about the experiences they had uh, living among wolves in the Idaho Sawtooth Mountain Range. And uh, 
I guess, living with the idea that uh, what they are discovering and sharing might make a difference in the, uh, well, the survival of this particular animal, which not so long ago was on the endangered species list. And once it was taken off, once it had uh, received enough range, for example, in northern Minnesota and parts of Montana and Wyoming and Idaho, uh, then hunting ensued. So that uh, created a bit of controversy. Are you back with me? Yes, we're back. We're All back. Right. I don't know what happened. Uh, well, it's just as well. We've got a little background in there, but I want to just talk now about something else that uh, you are involved in, your nonprofit called Living with Wolves. Yes. Uh, you've got a website. Uh, you're, you're interested in raising awareness about this issue. How is it supported? It's supported by um, donations from individuals and uh, grants when we can get them. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty near and dear to our heart. We... Um, we, we pretty much we put all of uh, the book royalties, film royalties in, into the nonprofit. When we, um, when we finished making our last film, you know, a lot of uh, film companies said, oh, you know, why don't you go do something else? And we thought about it, but we kept coming back to wolves because we really felt that they were so misunderstood. And the Sawtooth Pack gave us so much personally that we really felt that we needed to give back to them. And this was the way for us to do it. One of the issues that uh, inevitably comes up when people talk about wolves is the uh, possibility that they, you know, they have cattle. Is they're a predator for cattle, for example, or sheep, or something like that. Uh, How how serious a problem is wolf predation on livestock? Well, there are six million um, cows uh, on the open range (laughs) in three western states of Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana, and out of the six million. Wolves killed 180 in 2011. Uh, those are um, um, government figures. It's it's really not a huge problem, and um, and there are we work with ranchers. Our nonprofit has a board of um, advisors. We have um, uh, not just uh, scientists on this board, but we have ranchers and hunters and economists, and there's ways to get around some of these problems. One of them is just cleaning up the carcasses of dead animals that die on the open range so wolves and other predators don't have, don't build up the habit of feeding on livestock. Um, keeping cow-calf pairs together, um, you know, if they're separated and the calves are by themselves, they run from wolves. Where the big cow it won't run, and, um, and and it's very difficult for a wolf to take down the cow. But the calves do run, and if they keep them together, they'll stick to with their mothers. Hmm. So there's 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 solutions, and we that's one of the things we do. Your book, The Hidden Life of Wolves, has a foreword by Robert Redford. How is it that he got involved in this? Well, years ago, uh, when I was producing a film about water for the National Geographic. Um, 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 Bob came up and uh, worked with me on the film. Um, I was introduced by a, a mutual friend, and um, he was very helpful. And um, over the years, he's watched what I've been doing and endorsed other books of mine and Jamie's. And um, he's just been very supportive of what we do. And um, he's on our honorary board, and we really appreciate his voice. The gray wolf, that's the wolf we're talking about in, in some environments, is called a timber wolf, right? Or, that's right, yes. or, or tundra. Okay, and, and if it's, uh, uh, there are some uh, subspecies maybe that's a white wolf? Or? Well, the Arctic wolf. The Arctic wolf, okay. Yes, it's also in the gray wolf family and the Mexican wolf. 
So worldwide, what's the is there an estimated population for wolves? You know, I honestly I don't I don't know the figure of how many wolves there are worldwide, but an interesting uh, thing to note is before um, before man really started this this war against the wolf, the the wolf pretty much lived wolf lived on every continent except um, Antarctica and um, and Australia. So as as widely distributed as as us. What happened to your wolves when the project was over? Well, we formed a relationship and friendship with the Nez Perce tribe of northern Idaho, and um, we had a nonprofit organization that uh, built an education center for them, and they um, um, took the wolves, and over the years, the pack has died out. This was in the, oh, the mid-1990s, 1996, when we moved the pack. And so they, they have been... Um, um, there's just one wolf left, and uh, one of the pups that was a pup at that time. Is that uh, typical in a in a wolf pack life cycle? Do the no. packs just kind of <laughs> fold and go away? Oh. Um, no. What what happened was because our wolves were in captivity, um, it would have been wrong to um, to have released them into the wild because not only would it have been illegal, but they needed the one thing that they needed survive in the wild they'd lost which was fear of humans hmm. so we knew from the very beginning of this project that um, these wolves were going to live their lives in captivity and they we had planned that they were going to be ambassadors for their wild cousins so um, we made an agreement with the Nez Perce and and uh, they, they were moved up there and into northern Idaho and we built a, a similar enclosure and because you know, wolves. You know, they would keep they would breed every year, and they were in a captive situation. We agreed to do tubal ligations on the females, so they would keep their breeding behavior, but they wouldn't continue to have pups because you know there's nowhere for them to expand to. And our hope was that by the time the sawtooth pack had lived out its life, there would be a better understanding of wolves. So, Doug, you might wonder why why didn't we just do this in the wild? Um, what we were studying was the social behavior of wolves, something they had to do very close up and be accepted. Um, if you go out into the wild and you see a, a wolf, um, it, it, it's so wary of your presence that they change their behavior when they know they're being observed. So you really can't get that social behavior that we were looking at, how they got along as a family. And that, that's why we did what we did. And if we had built up a relationship with a wild pack of wolves where maybe over the years we got closer and closer, well, someone with a gun could do the same thing, and um, we didn't want them to trust us. One of the most interesting pieces of the book, and I think the photographs kind of support it, but it's really compelling, the emotional lives of wolves. You claim, I think, some empathy and compassion. Uh, oh yeah, oh, yeah. We, we you know each wolf had a different re- relationship with the other. The personalities there was leaders, there were pup sitters, um, there were bullies, pup playmates, clowns, and scapegoats. I mean, they, um, we saw compassion, we saw affection, play, um, competition. We even uh, witnessed sy- sympathy, guilt, um, joy, and happiness. All these uh, things that you wouldn't expect to see. Uh, in a wild animal, but they really cared about each other. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today about your new book, 
The Hidden Life of Wolves. We've been speaking with Jamie, Jim and Jamie Dutcher, and uh, this new book uh, out by National Geographic. Loads of photographs and some very interesting information about a misunderstood animal, <laughs> the gray wolf. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, Doug. you, Doug. It's been a pleasure. The, the news is next. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. This Wednesday at 7 o'clock, Angela Davis will be featured in a great conversation at the University of North Dakota's Chester Fritz Auditorium. This is put on by the University Program Council. And Tom Bakui Bailey, an assistant professor in the Department of Counseling, Psychology, and Community Services, will be facilitating the discussion. And he joins us by phone from our, or he joins us from our studio in Grand Forks. Uh, professor Bailey, thanks for joining us. Hi, Doug. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Good. Thank you for having me. For those of, of our audience who uh, weren't of an age, as I was in 1969 <laughs> and thereafter, uh, explain Angela Davis's role in social activism. Sure. Um, you know, Angela Davis, I think, really kind of came into prominence in the in the late 60s um, in terms of her work with the black liberation movement, particularly out in California. Um, and I think gaining maybe more national fame or, or uh, recognition um, with the uh, kind of there was a. In, in 1970, um, in California, Jonathan Jackson, um, a 17-year-old kid, uh, attempted to free some uh, some men who were incarcerated, and they were actually at quite a court hearing. And so um, the judge was killed. Uh, the pers- the uh, the prosecution, uh, one of the attorneys, uh, was also injured, and the the gun, one of the guns being used, actually was owned by Angela Davis, and so from there, kind of sparked a national manhunt um, for her. She was charged with uh, kidnapping, uh, murder, and conspiracy, and so I think that really shot her into the prominence of kind of the United States and, and kind of what was going on in, in the 60s at the time. I think people often talk about the 60s as kind of a turbulent time in our history where we saw demonstrations, we saw Vietnam War, uh, we saw, uh, you know, people fighting for rights and, and the various uh, kind of experiences, you know, mass demonstrations. And so I think she really represented for many people, um, and for many people of color, for, for black folks, particularly uh, out in California, uh, she represented a fight against oppression, um, a fight against those folks who were being what they perceived as being um, treated inhumanely while they were incarcerated. And so I think she, she really served as, as kind of that figure for many people. Um, and so there was a nationwide manhunt. Ultimately, she was captured and there was a trial and, and subsequently um, she was freed after 16, 16 months of being incarcerated. But I think really that I think she was really seen as this person who stood up against uh, this, this what many people thought of as an oppressive system at that time. Um, and then from that point, um, she uh I guess actually in the early 60s and, and moving to, to the 80s, many people also remember her as being part of uh, the Communist Party's mm-hmm. uh, presidential ticket, or she was serving as the vice president or running for vice president at the time. So being on the Communist Party kind of presidential ticket. And so I think for in 1980, 1984, so again, kind of... Uh, in terms of her political views, her stances, that was also being taken into consideration and continue with that. Um, since that time, she has really fought for and um, for uh, for women, fought against uh, violence committed against women. She has also uh, she also is one of the founding members of Critical Resistance, um, which is really what people have, have talked about in terms of uh, prison. Um, uh, 
working to end the which what's been described as the prison industrial complex. So kind of uh, prison abolition, I guess, is what people may refer to that. As. So really seeing that as a system um, that continues to to treat people unjustly and unfairly, and that that the incarceration process um, she has likened it to institution of slavery in that it's kind of this cheaper or free labor and that there's no rehabilitation and the disenfranchisement of, of many folks. And so after people are in, uh, incarcerated, particularly with felonies in, in many states um, that they, uh, particularly like Florida um, and a couple other states, they lose the right to vote uh, for the remainder of their lifetime on certain crimes. Let's uh, pick in through some of these things is you've you've covered a very large territory here. <laughs> I, tr- I tried to give an overview if, if that's possible, so <laughs> okay. pardon me for taking too much liberty there. No, that's all right. Uh, but in 1970, she owned a gun that yes. was used in a, a violent and deadly crime that yes. re- resulted in death. Uh, she was charged with aggravated kidnapping and first-degree murder Yes, uh, in the death of that judge. A warrant for her arrest was issued. And uh, she became the third woman to appear on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitive list. Yes. Well, she became a fugitive. She fled California. She was caught. President Nixon congratulated the FBI on the capture of the dangerous terrorist Angela Davis. (laughs) Yep. Yes. After spending those months behind bars, she was acquitted of all charges. I think sometimes that gets lost. Yes. She was charged. She fled. She was captured imprisoned and acquitted. Yes, very much, very correct, uh, acquitted of those charges. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really interesting story because after she, uh, I mean, she was in California at the time, uh, you know, in her autobiography, her autobiography, she talks about watching the news and the the uh, arrest warrant issued for her. And so really going from California to Chicago to Detroit to New York to Miami and back to New York where she was captured. And, and I think for for many people in the American society, I think because because she fled, because um, because she had an association with the black liberation movement and the Communist Party, I think a lot of people made assumptions about her guilt that she was part of this conspiracy for uh, kidnapping and murder. Um, and so I think the perception of many folks was that that she was this uh, bad, for lack of better words, character in society. And, and I think with Ronald Reagan's statements, with um, governor at the time, Ronald Reagan and, and President Nixon, I, I do think people saw her as a terrorist to the state. Um, and so I, th- I think it does get lost that she was acquitted of all the charges Um and and not, and I think we lose the full breadth of, of who she is in terms of um, as not just a, a political activist, uh, but a great scholar in terms of her writing about these institutions and what they mean to individuals. At, mean, at the time, though, that kind of got lost in yes. all of the flack that was going on because she was a well-educated woman. Uh, she was uh, on the edge of a very uh, impressive career. Uh, but – she was allied with the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was allied with issues that were on one side of the ideological paradigm at that <laughs> time. And, and she was called radical. Now, the word radical requires context, and times have changed. Is Angela Davis still a radical? You know, Doug, I think that's, that's a good question. I think it, it, it is. It's context and how we define radical. Um, you know, people refer to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as a radical, and, and I think he appreciated that in terms of 
his commitment to change. And so I think in some ways, yes, she still is a radical. Um, I, I think that contextually, though, you know, times have changed. And so I think many of the things that she's engaged in has become more acceptable. I think because of we are such a media driven society, so so that things become aware, people become aware of things that are happening. And I think people are able to then, because we become aware, sometimes we just get the raw information. People have the opportunity to decide for themselves what kind of end of that political spectrum you talked about. So I think, you know, after the 50s and in the 60s, in terms of the United States perception and the Cold War and being in existence, the United States perception around the Communist Party uh, was a very negative perception. Yes. And so I think being tied to that, as you said, being tied to the Black Panther Party, I think people uh, probably remember Huey Newton and Bobby Seale standing on the, 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 the state capitol steps in California, uh, you know, with their shotguns. And so, again, I think they, you know, when, when you connect these things, I think that is what led to her being defined as a radical. I think now, you know, with the Occupy movement um, that we saw here in the United States in terms of the Arab Spring that we saw in um, Middle East and, and Arab, you know, the Arab world, um, I think that so much change is happening in our world right now um, that, I think that the definition of radical is probably going ratcheted up a few notches, but I think her commitment to fighting against uh, what she perceives as being injustices and uh, oppression of marginalized people is still the same. I think she's still very committed to that, uh, to that end. The word multicultural is a touchstone for some hot political rhetoric to this day. Why? Well, you know, I think, uh, a lot of people are fearful of the unknown, and I think that um, there is propaganda that goes along with that term multiculturalism. So um, I think out in California um, and in the, the southern part of the country where people are, our states are having these these very strong um, um, laws against undocumented individuals, primarily those individuals being of Latino, Latina descent. And so I think that people make the assumptions that this person may be, quote, taking my job or, you know, they're they're, they're causing a greater tax, um, you know, a tax burden to the community. And I think that's how they start to discuss multiculturalism. And I think we have to really broaden that perspective. So really what that says is that if you're not like me, that I might not be OK with you, you being or sharing space. I think that people may not say that mm-hmm. overtly, but I think covertly that. It may mean that. And so I think multiculturalism, and and that's really a lot of of my research and interest, is really understanding the experiences of people as it relates to their race, as it relates to their sexual identity, as it relates to their gender, the level of ability, and really appreciating those differences and what it means for our society. You know, I think there's some radicalness in the Americans with Disability Act, right? And so, but I don't think, I don't think people think of it in that way, but You know, for a long time, we didn't think about having ramps in front of doors. We didn't think about, um, you know, the size of text for people who have uh, limited vision. You know, I don't think we thought about those things or access to public transportation or um, architecture of buildings. But in some ways, that's radical. And I think by thinking of that and by considering that and having research, then we see the change. So now we do have accessible um, transportation, public transportation. We do have accessible um, archways and doorways. And so I think I think sometimes we get lost up in and maybe some of the fear of what we don't know and what we've been told behaviorally is is not something we like. 
Well, is it perhaps uh, indicative of change that, that you teach something that boils down to like multicultural psychology and that Angela Davis is a distinguished professor emerita of history of consciousness? <laughs> I think it does. I mean, I think it I think there are a lot of things that we can we can point to that says that that will say we have grown as a society, as a culture. And I think we have to continue to push ourselves. I can't I don't think we can rest on those laurels and say, well, we've come this far. It's okay." Um, I think, you know, in President Obama's uh, his inaugural speech uh, just a few weeks ago, he really talked about um, what does life mean for people who identify as being gay, lesbian, bisexual. He, he mentioned Stonewall, which uh, right, it took place in in and in New York and in terms of against people identified as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. He talked about women and, and unequal uh, pay that is received. So I think that that I will say we, we have changed. And, and I think that the testament of me talking to you and, and teaching multicultural psychology as a course where just 30 years ago, even 20 years ago, there's some counselor psychologists who didn't have that experience. So I think we are growing. I think we are recognizing and valuing diversity. And I think we have to continue to push ourselves. And I think she probably thinks of President Obama as just a little conservative for her taste. <laughs> I think probably on some issues. Definitely probably on, on – I, I, I'm going to ask her. I will hopefully find out. But okay. I think – yeah, I think there are a lot of issues that, that – she definitely supports President Obama. And I think that she'd be pushing him um, just the same. Well, an important piece of her – background is that she's from Birmingham, Alabama. Right, right. She lived in a bad part of town. Mm -hmm. And when she was actually a student in the early 60s, she was in France when she heard about the church bombing in 1963 in Birmingham. Now, those are the kinds of things that gave rise to the Black Panther Party and the other activist organizations. Uh, What does she think about the new Black Panther Party? You know, I I don't know. I'd really have to find out. In terms of, I think a lot of work she's doing now, I don't think she's really uh to my knowledge and and you know forgive me for not being as well versed on on this particular issue so you know i'd have to ask her and see i do think that the new black panther party um you know from from my limited knowledge in terms of their work is it's very different and similar in some ways to the uh those black panthers uh in the 60s and early 70s so we have to find out. But I, I do think you're right. She was in France and um, the bombings that took place in Birmingham and also what was going out in California, you know, for her, made her leave her, her studies at the time and, and say she wants to be, in part, you know, be involved in being part of the movement. And I thought that really spoke to uh, maybe that radical, um, the, the notion of that, that uh, label of radicalness. But I also think it was commitment and willing to struggle with her brothers and sisters who she saw suffering in the U.S. How was she chosen for the great conversation? Um, you know, not by my doing. You know, really, there were some students that came together as a part of the university programming council. Um, and Matthew Finley is the the chairperson of that that council. And students came together and they talked about who did they want to come to campus, who they thought, um, you know, was a, a prominent figure who played a, a important role in our you know, current 20th, 21st history, century history. Um, and they came and, and they made that decision and they have been supported by the administration. And so it was really student driven. And, you know, I was contacted by Matthew and, you know, he asked if I'd be willing to uh, facilitate the the great conversation with Angela Davis. And, I was, you know, for me, it's a, it's a big honor um, in terms of having 
that opportunity. As we mentioned earlier, she she knows what it's like to be behind bars. She spent uh, well over a year behind yes. bars as a result of that 1970 imbroglio. Uh, but since then, and for for years, she's been an outspoken critic of the country's prison system. Yes. Uh, yes. And uh, she calls it the prison industrial complex, and she cites prison and immigration practices in this country as reminders of slavery and says our past still haunts us. Yes. Uh, Where is she going with that? (laughs) Doug, I I think she – and she's talked about this in her writing. I I think what – um, and, and really, I think she was greatly influenced by W.E.B. Du Bois and, and his analysis um, in terms of the prison system and structure. And so um, during slavery and the time just thereafter, in terms of the number of people of African descent who were incarcerated in comparison to, to their white brothers and sisters was really small. Um, and so looking at part of being in prison is doing work. And getting paid next to nothing. And so it becomes a cheap or in some ways free labor. And so I think she's really challenged that. And then the industrialization of it. So it is not – I think she questions is it really a, rehabilit- a rehabilitation process, one when there's a, a loss of uh, the right to vote. So that disenfranchisement and, and, again, connecting that to slavery. So this idea of not having the right to be – to vote on your representation and not be, not be counted – um, and so and then I think also looking at the not just the percentage, but not just the numbers, but the percentage. So uh, if you think, you know, for people of African descent, black folks, African-Americans in this country, um, Latino or Latina um, folks in this country, they make up what I would say is l- less than 30 percent of the population, probably about 26 percent, roughly, maybe 27, depends on you know, how we count statistics um, or how we look at these numbers, rather. Um, But yet and still, if you take these two racial groups, they account for 58 percent of the prison population of the just over 2.5 million people who are incarcerated today. And so I think that the that what she says is that she talks about the injustice in terms of incarceration process. We know that um, at the federal level, there were laws that differentiated um, sentencing for possession of crack, possession and distribution of crack cocaine, as opposed to possession and distribution of powder cocaine, and in in just in that those kind of uh, laws and that the sentencing, what we what what has been seen is that the the disproportionate number and percentage of people of color then who were incarcerated for longer periods of time um, for that crime. And so just recently, uh, the Department of Justice going back and really looking at that law. So I think she has looked at, and and forgive me for not going to extreme detail, but I think she's looked at these type of issues um, and really talked about this kind of prison industrial complex that that, that more and more prisons are becoming privatized um, and that the, the labor um, and the removal of um, particularly people of color from society and then this disenfranchisement, the loss of vote um, by many folks. So I think those factors um, have contributed to um, separation from family. All these things have contributed to um, her classification of the prison um, as the prison industrial complex. Do you think the 21st century will end with racism and other forms of what had been socially accepted discrimination fading into the past? 
you know, Doug, I think it's possible. But what I would say is I think that people have to um, openly and honestly acknowledge its existence. I think that, you know, with the election of President Obama, many people started to say we are in this um, kind of, uh, you know, in, in terms of society being, I guess, less based on on race. Um, but yet and still, I think people very much respond to one another, you know, based on race and other aspects of cultural identity. So we're we're not in this what some people have called post-racial society. Um, and I think until we acknowledge um, the power, privilege and oppression that exists as it relates to race, the social construct, this, this idea of race, I think it would be really hard for us to tackle um, racism and really work to dismantle that system. And I also believe that uh, for me as a person of color, that my white brothers and sisters also have to be involved in that fight. Um, be- just because we have one black president does not mean that, you know, we're in this post-racial society or that racism is non-existence when we only have, you know, I think now one black senator or about to be one black senator. So we have two now. Two, two, excuse me. One's been appointed. One is, oh, so the appointment went through. So now we ha- we have two. So, you know, I think that we can look at a lot of different areas. We could look at the, the governors across the, the country. We can look at our elected officials. We can look at the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. We can, I mean, we could, we could go across the board and we can find instances where race is a factor. We may not talk about it, but race is a factor. Angela Davis will be the subject of the great conversation at UND's Chester Fritz Auditorium Wednesday at 7 o'clock, put on by the University Program Council. The facilitator of the discussion will be Assistant Professor Tomba Kui Bailey, and he joined us from our Grand Forks studio this afternoon. Uh, I, I should also mention, Professor Bailey, that uh, this is a birthday day for Rosa Parks. She would have been 100 years old today. Wow. So... A little historical significance there, too. Yes. Doug, thank, thank you very much for having me on your show. Thank you for joining us. All right. Bye-bye. Dakota Date Books next. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. Hello, I'm Merrill Pepcorn, inviting you to attend the next live performance of Dakota Air, the radio show, 2 p.m. Saturday afternoon, February 16th, the Empire Arts Center in Grand Forks. Special guests are internationally acclaimed violinist and conductor of the UND Chamber Orchestra, Alejandro Drago, and the Chamber Orchestra will be there, too. And we'll be celebrating the newfound fame and celebrity of Grand Forks Herald columnist Marilyn Haggerty. Tickets at the Empire or any Grand Forks Gate City Bank. Dakota Air, Saturday afternoon, February 16th in Grand Forks. Support for Dakota Date Book is provided by Attorney Daniel Buchanan of Buchanan Law Office in Jamestown, specializing in elder law and estate planning. Information on these and other legal matters is available at 252-6604. This is Dakota Date Book for February 4th. As thousands of Model Ts rattled across the Dakotas in the 1910s, Henry Ford needed a way to keep those cars running and to get new cars to customers. Ford built additional factories in cities across the U.S. because it was cheaper to ship parts from Detroit and assemble the cars in these branch houses than to ship a complete Model T. Ford established a branch house in Fargo to sell cars in the Northwest. At first, they could not find a structure big enough for the factory. The office, assembly plant, and parts warehouse were all located in different buildings. 
1914, the construction department of the Ford Motor Company began work on a new building on North Broadway in Fargo across the tracks from the Great Northern Depot. In order to support the weight of the machinery and to protect against fire, the building was made entirely of reinforced concrete. Pouring the concrete began in the winter, and in February of 1915, the first floor was in place. But as workmen started on the second floor, the first floor began to sag. They scrambled for safety as the first floor collapsed into the basement. When the dust cleared, three men were taken to the hospital, and two workers were missing. The fire department and the police helped in a search for the men. At about 5 o'clock in the morning on this date in 1915, the bodies of the two men were found in the rubble. Construction on the project halted, and for a time it appeared the damage was too extensive to continue, and workers refused to return to work until the site was deemed safe. Heads of the Ford Construction Department came from Detroit to evaluate the situation. It appeared that the cement of the first floor had not cured enough to support the weight of the second floor, causing the collapse. However, they concluded that the damage could be repaired, and despite the tragedy, construction resumed. On the 23rd of July, the building was officially opened, and the Ford Motor Company band came to perform. The city of Fargo declared it Ford Day, and every downtown business decorated their storefronts with Ford logos and displays using Ford parts. The recently renovated building still stands today, an important example of Fargo's downtown renewal. Today's Dakota Date book was written by Derek Dalsad. I'm Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council. That Ford Assembly building, of course, became upscale condos in Fargo, not very far from the Prairie Public Studios, and as a matter of fact, uh, a beautiful place with apparently very, very sturdy floors. Tomorrow on Hear It Now, Marketplace for Kids Education Days will be taking place across North Dakota starting in March Marilyn Kipp, the Marketplace Executive Director, will join us with a preview about that. We'll have a Plains Folk column from Tom Ezern. And get this, the Extreme North Dakota Triathlon is coming in February. We tried to do this last week. We're going to do it tomorrow. Andy Magnus will join us to talk about this challenging winter event. So join us for that tomorrow on Hear It Now. And if you want to see more about wolves, wolves, just uh, Google Jamie, Jim and Jamie Dutcher. That's D-U-T-C-H-E-R, and you'll see lots of photographs, too. In the meantime, have a great evening.